Financial Residency is proud to bring you Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Each week, Tammy Krause explores a new topic related to achieving financial independence by building and protecting your wealth. She invites guests who are experts in their fields who will share honest and valuable advice on a variety of topics. If you have an idea for a podcast, please email Tammy, that's T-A-M-M-Y, at financialresidency.com. Now grab your front row seat to this week's Grand Rounds. Hi, and welcome back to Grand Rounds. I've had the pleasure of meeting many doctors this year, and I've had the honor of telling many of their stories. But I think today's guest may have the most inspirational story that I've come across so far. Today, she is this badass lady doc who is helping many people in society who really may not have a single other person in the world advocating for them. And it's really the story of how she got to this point in her life, where she's an activist and a proponent for those without a voice that I think is really going to astonish you. I'd like to welcome to the show, Dr. Cheryl Rosinos. Welcome to the show, Cheryl. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you and to all your listeners. I can't wait. I've kind of come across you here and there over the internet, you know, over the past few years. And I stumbled onto your story in the physician moms group, I think several years ago, and was just amazed. Let's start there. Can you tell us how you got to become a physician and where that story started? Of course, it's a very long and, and traveled journey, but it really began with me giving birth to my first child when I was 19. I was young and I had been living on the streets for several years on and off in shelters or, you know, in temporary housing or outside. And the last couple months of my pregnancy, I'd spent at a McDonald's that was 24 hours in Hollywood before ultimately getting into some last minute housing and then having my baby. And I remember sitting in the hospital thinking, you know, no one's listening. No one is asking the right questions. Everybody's kind of mean. And I, I want to be a voice for people like myself. And I really couldn't verbalize exactly what that feeling was right then. But really, it felt like when I was in the hospital that I had come home. And it felt like a home for someone like me as someone who didn't have one. And it was such a strange feeling. I, I didn't know what to do with that feeling. I chased that dream for many years. After I was discharged from the hospital, I moved back in with a friend temporarily and then eventually got into a mother's housing program and then moved in with her father when she was eight months old. And somehow, even though we both overcame a lot of trauma, we ended up making a marriage that worked and we're still together all these years later with three kids now. And I had this dream that just wouldn't go away. You know, I went to community college when she was a baby. And I told my academic advisor that I wanted to go to medical school. And he didn't know anything about my past and just thrust me into all these classes I wasn't ready for. And I was struggling a little bit, especially with the math, because I hadn't taken it in several years. You know, graduating high school on the streets meant that I did a lot of independent studies and I hadn't set foot in a math class for a while. And so that was quite a problem. So there were obstacles along the way, and I didn't end up going directly to medical school. Instead, I graduated and I became a high school teacher. And I taught high school science for eight years. And I kept pushing, you know, to find a way to convince myself that I didn't really need to be a doctor, that it was just some silly dream I'd had when I was 19. And I kept changing high schools, trying to find like the one that would work for me, the place where I would finally fit in. And I kept getting degrees. I went and got a second bachelor's and I went and got a master's in education. And I said, you know, one more thing. If I do one more thing, I'll be happy. 
And it just didn't happen for me. Like, I just, I didn't feel comfortable where I was and I didn't feel like it was my calling. And I had a colleague who very astutely kind of pulled me aside and said, you know, what are you doing? You hate this. You want to go to medical school. It's time. You need to apply. You've never given it a try. And so I I took that advice to heart and I started, you know, pre-med counseling and advising at one of the colleges I was at. And I started volunteering at two hospitals because I was kind of an overachiever like most pre-med students are. And I ended up in in two hospitals and like in a leadership role in one of them. And, you know, that very first night when I set foot into the hospital, I was nervous. I was in my late 20s. I was older than all the other students and I had three kids and I got there and I, I didn't really know what I was supposed to do or what my role was or even if this was the right choice. And then I got upstairs and I met my first patient and he was, you know, drunk and homeless and screaming and struggling and that inner feeling of, oh my God, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be just shown right through. And I, I knew it was time. I knew I needed to push and fight for the dream because it became kind of clear to me that was where I was supposed to be, even though I didn't understand it completely yet. And so I pushed for it. I applied and got rejected from a lot of medical schools. And then I got accepted to Ross in the Caribbean and I went there at 31. It's a long journey. It sounds like it. Are you okay if I ask? Can we go even further back? It sounds like you, I mean, you've been living on the streets for a long time. You ran away, what, at the age of five for the first time? And I mean, even just getting to high school and and college wasn't an easy journey for you, if I am correct. It was definitely a difficult upbringing. I grew up in a very dysfunctional family, like textbook dysfunctional family. My dad, for all intents and purposes, I believe he's a narcissist. And my mom was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And so as my mom rapidly cycled and struggled, she lost custody and I was placed in my dad's custody and it just didn't go well. He didn't have the idea or mindset of raising children on his own and he wasn't happy about it. And so he married right away and he married someone who had the same psychiatrist as my mom. And you can imagine that didn't work very well because, you know, she was depressed and suddenly she had five kids, five stepkids. And she never had wanted children. And here I was being the youngest of the five. And it it didn't work out well because I was, you know, very loud and and frustrated and trying to get someone to pay attention to me and to hear me and to meet my needs. And that didn't happen. Like I'd already undergone trauma when my mom left. Um, Even before that, if we go back to when I was five, like that was before my parents separated or divorced. Um, I tried to run away because my oldest my second to oldest brother had been put into foster care. And that's such an unusual situation where one sibling is sent into foster care, but he was kind of given up and thrown into the system. And as soon as that happened, my dad started comparing me to him and telling me I was just like him. And so in my mind, I thought, you know, I'm next. They're going to send me next. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't wrong. Just the timing was wrong. And so at five, I tried to leave. And I didn't succeed because at five, you have no tools or, or skills to do that. At eight, when my parents did separate, my mom had a breakdown and it was pretty bad. And she left me and one of my brothers in the mountains by the side of the road. And it was in the middle of you know a manic episode. And so we saw that for the first time together in a very scary way. And that's when my dad got custody. And I mean, obviously I'd gone through trauma at that point. It was very traumatic. And I wasn't responding well to my new stepmom. And when she was hospitalized for one of her many hospitalizations for her depression, 
we went for a family meeting. It was right after they had gotten married and I didn't really see her as family. And, and I protested and I said, you know, I don't want to be here. She's not family. I want to go home. It was summer vacation. And I felt like that was an appropriate request. I wanted to go home. I wanted to play video games. I wanted to do the things I'd been dreaming about all year, because what do 11 year olds want to do? They want to lounge around and play Zelda. And unfortunately, my dad had another plan and him and the psychiatrist, I guess they'd made an agreement beforehand, or I'm not really sure how it worked out, but he ended up leaving me on the adolescent side for two and a half months. Mm. And that was abusive. It was traumatic. I was, you know, force medicated and I was in isolation in four point restraints at 11. And it felt like a whole like kidnap experience where I didn't know why I had been taken or what had happened because it was just so sudden that I, I didn't understand what was going on. And they told me I couldn't call my mom, even though she was my one person that I still felt safe with. So they cut off that communication and, you know, I struggled. And I still don't think I needed to be on any of the medications they put me on. And, you know, I'm not on any now. And so I, I feel like there were a lot of mistakes made in my care. And it shocks me even when I think about it that I even am willing to set foot in a hospital after what had happened. But, you know, I shouldn't have been there and that shouldn't have happened. And that spiraled everything else out of control so that by the time I got home from there, I didn't want to be home. I knew that my dad could send me back and he threatened to send me back all the time for little things. Like if I didn't wear socks or if I walked home from school or, mm -hmm. you know, if I didn't clean my room fast enough, just like little things, the punishment was always, you're going to go back to the hospital. And, you know, he was using it, this abusive power over me. And so I started running away. So at 11, I ran away the first time where I stayed overnight somewhere. I, I walked around all night. I didn't know where to go. I was 11. And I ended up back at my elementary school in the morning because they had breakfast. I tried again when I was 12. And again, I really didn't know where to go. I ended up again back at my elementary school. So by the time I was 13, I, I knew I needed to go further if I was really going to leave. And by then I had kind of spiraled out of control where I felt completely unheard and unseen. And I was suicidal. And I knew that I needed to get out one way or another. And I gave myself a deadline because 13 year olds are not rational. And I told myself, if I'm not out of here within a week, then I'm just going to take a bottle of pills. And I set my timeline and I decided, you know, I'll just go far. Somehow I need to get enough money for a bus ticket. And when I opened up a map, I said, well, I was in North Carolina at the time. I was like, well, Los Angeles looks pretty far. So I guess I'll go there. I didn't know anything about Los Angeles. I just knew it was on the other side of the country. I didn't know Hollywood was in Los Angeles. I just knew that's far. They won't find me. I won't accidentally come back and I'll be gone for good. And, you know, a couple of days later, my dad left some money in his room. And when he was gone, I broke into his room because he had a lock on it. And I took the money and I bought a bus ticket and left. And, you know, I thought at 13, I'm going to get out to California and get a job and someone's going to help me figure out the rest of my life. And I didn't know that's not how things worked, because even though I was willing to work, I was too young. I had no paperwork. I was still, you know, massively traumatized and I hadn't addressed it. And I got to Hollywood where things just went worse right away. They went from very bad to very worse. Like there was a predator on the bus and he recognized that I was a runaway. And he sexually assaulted me when I got off the bus mm. under threat of calling the cops and telling them that I was a runaway. 
And it was after that, in the aftermath, when I was sitting at the bus station crying, that a woman came up to me and said, you know, I think there's a resource that you need. And she was the person like the, she was like the guardian angel that showed up and said, you know, there's a program in Hollywood that you should go to. And she got me over to the bus stop and made sure the bus driver knew where to take me. And I got off in Hollywood. My first time ever seeing it, I was still, you know, very upset, crying in pain. And I made it up to that program. And I was hopeful because it was a place that they told me would help me, but I also had trust issues. So I, I did agree to stay there for the first night. And after that, I refused to go back because I felt like, you know, they were going to tell my dad where I was. They told me that they would not. They said they had a 72-hour rule where they didn't call the parents for permission until after 72 hours. They did call. And so my dad did know where I was. And when I left the shelter and ended up on the streets that first time at 13, after about a week or so, they did call the cops. And I was picked up at a local program as a runaway and placed in juvenile hall. So that was the first time I was arrested for being a runaway. Hmm. The judge here in California said that I had to be extradited back to North Carolina or else they were going to let my dad press charges for the money I stole when I left. And that planted the initial seed. You know, I was like, why can't I just stay here and go into foster care here? And that probably would have been the most ideal situation. And that's not what they chose for me. So they sent me back. And when I got back to North Carolina, I ended up in foster care. And it was a group home. They never put me in a direct home with like two adults. They just put me straight into group homes. And that's where they tend to put the kids that they think are the most troubled. And so I was in a group home and I didn't stay. I asked them if I could call my mom and they said no. And so I packed my bag and I left. And I hitchhiked this time because in between all of these different situations, I had learned about other ways to get around the country from other runaways and other kids in the detention centers and kids on the streets. And so now instead of stealing money to get a bus ticket, which was somewhat safer, I, I had learned how to hitchhike and I got out of North Carolina as fast as I could, but still got arrested again for being a runaway. And that cycle kept repeating. I kept running away and I kept getting arrested and sent back. And then the judge was kind of tired of me and my dad was embarrassed. And so he pressed charges for the money I had stolen when I ran away. And the judge decided that was appropriate. And he gave me a sentence of up to two years in maximum security juvenile prison at oh 13. My gosh. Yeah. <laughs> When I think about it, it just, it blows my mind that was allowed, but also I'm not shocked because of all the other kids I met there. We were just a bunch of traumatized kids. Did you have and, even and society one... needs to label them, but. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Did you have it's... even one adult that was on your side that you could talk to, a teacher, a friend, anyone? So at that point, my only adult had been my mom and she was not really allowed to talk to me. And in the school system, you know, my dad being very charismatic and me being the youngest of five kids, everybody knew who he was and they respected him. And they didn't know what things were like at home because he painted a really good portrait of how great everything was and how smart he was. And it, it looked like I was the problem. And so it was very easy for him to manipulate that into everyone believing that I was the problem instead of helping me get the you know, trauma care I needed as a young child. So I was sent to juvenile prison. 
at CA Dillon. It was a co-ed maximum security prison back in the 90s. It's now all male. I got there and it was terrifying. There were three different units, one for girls and two for boys. And within them, there were three separate wings in each of these cottages. And so I was placed on the wing in the girls' cottage with the girls that looked the meanest. And, you know, they were very upset that I was a 13-year-old and they didn't believe what my charges were. Because, you know, in the system, a lot of the time people ask what your charges are. And nobody believed I was there for running away from home and stealing money from my dad. Because what dad would press charges against their kid and put them in maximum security? And the fact that I was in maximum security kind of threw everybody off too. And so I was assaulted the first night by many of the girls in the shower. And that continued for a few months until I finally fought back and I got placed on another wing. And so, again, I was placed into a system of care that didn't turn out to be very caring or safe. And by the time I got out of that experience, I was released after 10 months for good behavior. By the time I got out of that experience, I was even more traumatized than I had started. And I had some significant, you know, PTSD features that were never fully diagnosed. But it was whenever I would turn around, like I was always watching my back to make sure no one was going to hit me again. And that's not paranoia. That's, you know, a lived experience. I was beat up multiple times while I was there. And so here I am now, 14 years old. Foster care gave me back to my dad while I was in custody. And so they sent me back to my dad's house where nothing had changed. I I got right back into the same environment where he was very proud to tell me I was just like my brother that he had sent away, that he never wanted five kids, that he always wanted four, but I was the fifth. And he constantly was telling me, you know, I can call your probation officer. I can send you to the hospital. You know, everything was, you know, punishable. And so I was there for a few months. And it it wasn't working well. I was struggling. And, <clears throat> and so at that point, I finally did take a bottle of pills and I overdosed. I was 14 and, and upset. You know, I didn't see any other way out. I knew that I had another year and a half on my probation and anything I did wrong was going to put me right back into juvenile prison. And so I went to the hospital and this time I did deserve to be there. And I was there for about a month. And while I was in the hospital, my probation officer actually canceled my probation. I think they looked closer at my case and I'm not really sure what the background was in that, but I think it was one of the right decisions that was made in my case because I was spiraling out of control. And I didn't really have a safety net. I had no way to get out of that house. And things remained chaotic when I got home from the hospital. I turned 15 and my first stepmom, she separated from my dad. And so for a very brief time, things kind of calmed down because now this woman who had come into the household who had been very toxic was gone and my dad could go back to ignoring me. By then at 15, my other brother was moving out of the house. And so I was the last kid there. He was going away to like an in-state high school and it was just me and my dad. And I tried to stay out of his way. I got really involved in school. I was running cross country and I was involved in multiple clubs. I mean, I was a good kid for all intents and purposes. Like if we really look back at my track record as a kid, I had mostly A's. 
I didn't really have any behavior issues at school. I was never in detention at school, even though I spent lots of time in juvenile detention, which makes no sense. I was never a problem kid, even though that was what I was painted out to be. It, it wasn't actually true. Um, and so I was involved in church and volunteering at a homeless shelter. Like I was a good kid. And, you know, it didn't matter. My dad was unhappy. And by the time I was 16, I had gotten a job. I was still running cross country and I was still in all these clubs. And my GPA was some ridiculous, like four point something weighted with all my AP classes. Like, again, still a good kid. Great kid. And right, like I was trying so hard and I shouldn't have to justify that. But I feel like it's important to mention that because a lot of the time we gloss over, you know, when we're talking to kids that are troubled, we gloss over like all these different characteristics and just listen to what adults are saying. And the adults were very wrong. And even if I had bad grades, they still should have had someone protecting me. But I got to the point where I was 16. I was working full time. And I I don't know how, but my dad found out I was thinking of filing for emancipation. And so he placed me back on a 72 hour hold in the hospital. Unfortunately, it was the same time as like an ice storm. And the psychiatrist didn't get up to see me until the third day of the 72 hour hold. And when he got there, he listened to my story and he was like the first person who actually heard what was going on. And he said, you know, I'm canceling the hold. You shouldn't be here. I'm sorry. You've been here the whole weekend. I missed work. You know, I almost got fired for missing work during one of their busiest weekends. And I got home. My dad first took me straight to a counselor where they both told me, now when you apply for legal emancipation, we're going to take this to the judge and show that you were on a hold. And so he put all his cards on the table and told me exactly what his plan was. But then a week later, when I got home, one afternoon, he was there and my brother was visiting. And he said, you know what, I don't care if you're here or not when I come home. And then he went out to dinner with my brother. And that was it for me. That was all he had to say. I'd been waiting to do things legally because I didn't want to end up back in the juvenile justice system. I'd been going to school and going to work and doing everything right. And the moment he said, you don't need to be here anymore, that's that was the end. That was when I left. And, you know, I packed a backpack and I said, you know, I'm just going to go stay with a friend. And I didn't have a car. And so I walked towards my friend's house and being the dumb kid that I was, I accepted a ride from a stranger who attacked me. And, you know, it's just one thing after another. And so I ended up being forced to go back to my dad's house that night by the police that came and responded when I jumped out of a moving vehicle and I was, you know, distraught. You know, so my dad, again, was very adamant that, you know, I was a problem and he wouldn't listen to what had happened. And even I could tell the officer was upset with him at that point because now I'm getting older and my words are getting more, you know, eloquent. I'm able to really speak my case and I was being heard, but not enough. You know, the officer understood that something bad was happening, but he had no power to do anything about it. And so I stayed for a few more days and then I ultimately ended up leaving with another girl. And we went first to Florida and we came back and then we went across back to California. And so it was a long journey, but at 16, I ended up back in Hollywood. And I remember when I first got here, I, I felt like I was finally home. And it was that same feeling I had when I was in the hospital, that feeling of home, even though I had nothing and I had no home. 
but it felt safer to be on the streets than at home because at least I knew I wasn't going to get locked up in an institution just for existing. And so that's how I ended up on the streets. And by the time I came back to Hollywood at 16, I was a mess. I was one of those very difficult people, like in, in doctor perspective, I was a difficult patient. I was angry and I didn't trust anyone. And, you know, I had a lot of reasons to be in that mindset and nobody was really asking. You've taken that experience and you now advocate for people who are homeless or have nobody else looking out for them. Can you talk about how your trauma has kind of helped you help others that may be in similar situations? Absolutely. When I first got off the streets, when I was, you know, 19 with a baby, the program that helped me through that first year of being a mom and really supported me. And, you know, I had a case manager that would, you know, talk me through crises or made sure I had emergency formula when I ran out of formula, you know, just amazing resources and wraparound care. That program was my friend's place. It's a drop-in program in Hollywood and they offer, you know, outreach and, you know, services, but no housing. They try to connect young people with housing and they're the ones that got me into the Young Moms program before I ended up moving in with my now husband. They were amazing. And when I finally was stable, when I finally graduated college and applied to be a teacher, you know, the last time I asked them for assistance was when I needed an emergency like check so I could pay for the teacher assessment test so I could become a teacher. And after that, I never needed support again. But immediately I turned into like a, a volunteer for them and started doing like collection drives at Christmas with my students where we would collect like canned goods and other things. And that, you know, developed into something, you know, richer over the years where I made some really solid connections with the staff that were there. And a few of them are still the ones that were there back in my time, but it's been a very long time. That was the late 90s. And so the program director and a few of the staff have known me for all those years. And as the years progressed, I spoke at a few of their events and I helped with fundraising. And, you know, it just it became a beautiful opportunity to really help young people so much that now, you know, after 15, 20 years of volunteering, I'm, I'm now on their board of directors as the first alumni board member. And it's such a special thing to be able to speak to the young people and tell them that, you know, I was where they are and I'm fighting for them. And, you know, I, I do everything that I can to help that program because those are kids that are, are not often seen or heard. Um, like my husband and I go down there and we'll provide meals for the kids. And it's always the most astonishing and cutest thing when he says, you know, these kids are just like our kids. They just need homes. And I tell him every time, absolutely, that's exactly what this is. These are kids just like our kids. They just need homes and love and support. And it's, you know, one thing for him to see that as my husband who walked that path with me, but most people don't see that. And so that's what I'm fighting for is, you know, people need to see that these young people have promise and they have so much life ahead of them. If we allow it, if we make sure that they have resources and really push to end homelessness, because what I don't understand is why we've still got kids outside. You know, it's been over 20 years. And when I look around me, I, I don't understand it. We've gone so much further as a nation, and yet we're still living in massive poverty where we have basically the features of a developing nation. 
when we walk outside and we have tent cities and young people who really don't have safety. And I'm going to advocate until that ends. Like we can't have young people on the streets. It just can't happen. It needs to be just like in medicine. It needs to be a never event. There should not be kids outside. And so that's why I'm going to continue doing what I do until it works, until we get every kid indoors. How do we, how do we advocate for those kids? Like on our local levels, you know, we've got people listening everywhere today. How do you find those kids? How do you connect with them? How, what can you do to support them? So a lot of it is prevention. A lot of young people that we said we would protect, we placed into foster care. And at 18, about half of them end up homeless within a year and a half of aging out of the system. And so setting up supportive programs to really provide that extra layer of, you know, support and, you know, that safety net for young people as they age out of the system with no connections, that prevents a lot of homelessness. And a safety net looks like, you know, housing vouchers and, you know, housing programs where people can move into with, you know, very low barrier care. We don't need all of the punitive rules that a lot of programs have. I know we talk a lot about, you know, harm reduction versus, you know, completely abstaining from any kind of harm, but really a harm reduction approach is the safest way. You you have a lot of kids that have a lot of trauma, and sometimes you're going to run into issues where some of them are going to use substances, and that should not be a barrier to housing. I, I see a lot of people who make comments about people who are experiencing homelessness, whether young or old. And a lot of the time, the comments are very derogatory and stereotyped, where they say like, oh, but they're using, that's why they're on the the streets. And my answer to that is always, you know, we've got a lot of housed people who use, and we don't punish them by taking away their housing. And so we have to have a different approach where we look at people as whole beings and try to help them come into the safest possible lifestyle, the safest possible, you know, environment. And it might not be something that is comfortable for us, but we have to understand that not everyone is like us. Not everyone was raised in, you know, safe two-parent households where everything was supported and they were protected and, and their decisions were safe because they had someone behind them making sure that, you know, they had that safety net. You know, even my own kids, you know, my kids are quite spoiled compared to how I grew up and they're all adults now. And, you know, that was the goal, you know, they're all doing great. Like my, my youngest is 19 and they're in community college and constantly, you know, telling us how much easier things are for them compared to some of their peers, because they know that they have, you know, they have a vehicle, they have a place to stay, they have money for things that they need and they have that support. You know, they have that backup plan if if things go wrong. My oldest, when she was in college as a freshman, her art supplies got stolen out of her locker. And even though I was in residency at that time and really didn't have any money, I still pulled together money to replace all of the art supplies. Had that happened to me as a homeless or barely off the streets community college student, I wouldn't have been able to afford replacements. You know, there were multiple times when I was in college where I struggled And I didn't have the books for classes or the necessary supplies. And that's one of the things that we can do is we can really look into what's out there and supplement it. Like I know for myself, I started a scholarship fund at my friend's place back in 2018. Once I was done with residency, it was my first goal. 
And so we fund for young people who have gotten off the streets to help them with that safety net. So they have emergency funds available if they need things like art supplies that get stolen out of their locker or books for the semester. And that needs to be something that's in every program, in every city, in every county, in every state. We need to have that backup. We need to have, you know, food cabinets, food resources on campuses. Here in California, because we have such a problem with people experiencing homelessness, we have, you know, at most college campuses, especially the community colleges, we have food pantries where there's food that's accessible for anybody who wants it. And, you know, that makes a huge difference because it's one less thing to worry about when you're in school. So we just, we, we need all of that. We need wraparound care for our entire society. If you look at the way that prices are going up everywhere, it's out of control. We need to have better rents, you know, affordable housing. Because at 18, 19, 20 years old, what kid can afford an apartment that's $2,000 a month? Because you have to make three times the income, $6,000 a month to be able to pay that. They won't rent to them. And so where are they supposed to stay? So we need low-income housing. We need less barriers. We need access to healthcare, access to food, access to therapy to recover from trauma, and then all the preventative measures to keep kids from ever hitting the street. And so I know I want a lot, but I think we can do it. I think it's an incredible goal. And I know you're working to get there. Not only have you been a teacher, a mentor, an advocate, a physician, but you're also an author. Can you tell us about your work as an author? Yeah, I promised myself that I would someday tell my story. And I finally forced myself to sit down and write that story when I became an attendee. And I felt like it was finally safe to do so. And so in 2018, it's almost been five years, I released my memoir called Hindsight, Coming of Age on the Streets of Hollywood. And that book is my baby. That's my heart and soul on a piece of paper telling you exactly how I survived. And I intentionally wrote it in a way that really puts you in my head to see why I made the decisions I made. Because what I really need people to see is what a lack of agency I had. And that nobody was asking the right questions or reaching out and giving the right support. And instead they decided for me, you know, that I was a bad kid, that that I wanted whatever punishment I was getting. And they didn't really ask why I was making the choices I was making. And I kind of felt like that was symbolic because we do that in medicine. And a lot of the time we blame patients for their circumstance and we don't ask how they got to the place that they're at. You know, I, I do it a little bit differently as a hospitalist. Because when I really sat down and started thinking about, you know, what gets people hospitalized and why are they sick and why are they in the hospital? I realized, you know, if I'm admitting for a CHF exacerbation, for example, if somebody has CHF and they're the one who's getting admitted, I, I ask myself what went wrong? Because there's a lot of people at home who aren't coming in and getting admitted. So what went wrong here? And that's the approach that I needed is I needed someone to stand there and say, well, wait a minute, what have we missed? Where did we go wrong and how can we help you? And so I use that approach throughout my entire life. I, I just feel like we all need to step back and say, you know, what have we missed? Because if someone's in crisis, we've missed something and there's an opportunity for us to do better. I think you're right. I think as physicians, sometimes we have a blaming culture. Oh, they're just not eating like we told them they needed to eat. You know, they aren't taking their medicines like we told them they need to take their medicines, but sometimes there are barriers 
you know, maybe they can only afford a can of soup that has so much sodium in it, or they can't afford their medicines or a thousand things. But I think you're right. We just need to listen and listening is where it starts to help someone. Yeah. I feel like that's so important. And I I really hope if that's the one of the few things you take out of this, the other one is end homelessness. But if that's one of the things you take out of this as a listener, it's, you know, listen to your patients and listen to people around you and really hear what they're saying. And I understand you've also written some books for young adults and maybe even have a new book that's coming out soon. I, I have a children's book. It's a picture book called Gimby. Yes, in my backyard. It's my response to a lot of the local politics where people say, no, in my backyard, no, we can't, you know, house people here. We don't have space or send them someplace else. It's just a really hopeful, beautiful picture book about, you know, communities wrapping around people who need support and showing how everybody can do their part to make the community better. And so I'm very excited about that book, but it's almost ready. Maybe in a couple of months, it'll be out. I love it. I hope you'll come back and tell us about the book when it's ready to be published. I hope so. It's very pretty. I can't wait to show all the pictures to everyone. I bet. So, you know, we kind of talked about how to advocate in our local communities. If there's anyone that maybe wants to donate to my friend's place in Hollywood, is that a possibility too? Yes, they have a website that's set up that is very you know easy to use for donations. Their website is www.myfriendsplace.org. So M-Y-F-R-I-E-N-D-S-P-L-A-C-E.org. And then if someone wanted to learn more about you or maybe even have you speak to like a residency program or something, are you available to do that? Or how would they get in touch with you? They can either email me directly. It's my first and last name, Cheryl Racinos at gmail.com. Or they can go to my website, which is Cheryl Racinos MD.com. And that's spelled S-H-E-R-Y-L-R-E-C-I-N-O-S. Awesome. Cheryl, thank you for telling us your story. I just don't think I've ever heard a more inspirational story of how someone went from homelessness to medical school to happy marriage just in looking out for other people who are, you know, having a rough time and don't have an advocate in their own life. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I really hope that, you know, this talk helps some people among your audience to really reach out into their own communities and and help programs that are doing well do even better. Me too. Me too. Well, thanks again to everyone who's listening. And I hope no matter what your passion is that you reach out and do something in your community to help someone. And I hope you actually reach your lifetime goal of ending homelessness. So thanks again, Cheryl. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you'll all tune again next week for Grand Rounds. <laughs>